Hi, everyone. Welcome to the ASF Weekly Science Podcast. Today is September 21st, 2020. There is still one day left to register for the ASF Day of Learning. This year, because it's virtual, it's also free. So go to the ASF webpage and register. You can also multitask during the talks this year, which you couldn't do in person. I'll be moderating questions, so bring them. Last week, we discussed outcomes in cognitively able versus disabled people. This week, I want to talk about another group of individuals with ASD and a distinct challenge that is minimally verbal individuals. They may have some communication abilities, but they don't have that many words. Earlier studies tried to predict what is the biggest predictor of being minimally verbal in adolescence. The number one thing was imitation of hand signals, so they could not replicate or imitate movements of the hands like drawing shapes or animal figures. Imitation is a critical precursor for social communication ability, and it should be a focus of interventions. Also, parents are better than clinicians at eliciting language, so they should be engaged in therapy sessions. And I'm not going to just leave it at understanding people who are minimally verbal this week. I'm going to talk about an intervention study led by researchers at UC Santa Barbara. Whenever I mention Santa Barbara, I always think of that old soap opera called Santa Barbara. Come at me if you watch that show. Now that I've aged myself back to autism, language ability is normally assessed during something called a natural language sample. Unfortunately, just measuring language as it normally occurs is not going to work for people who are minimally verbal. And there are actually protocols to measure language through elicited means, but they're like a box of chocolates. You never know who is going to use which protocol, and of course, that influences the outcome. So with all these protocols and all these ways of eliciting language in those who are minimally verbal... How can assessments be made across clinics to make meaningful judgments about verbal ability? And how can research be done with all these different protocols? Well, it's hard. So a group led by Helen Tager-Flessberg at Boston University, who is one of the leading researchers in the U.S. studying these minimally verbal people with ASD, developed a protocol and looked at how it could be used. They named it ELSA, or Eliciting Language Samples for Analysis. Think of Elsa, the Disney character, who some people actually think was on the autism spectrum. It's not that I don't believe that. I just try not to think too hard about that movie. If I hear Let It Go one more time, I'm going to cry. The activities they used to elicit language were not terrible. For example, one of them is called Discovering Animals, where kids were asked to elicit a description of animals that children are familiar with, hidden around the room like a cat or a dog. Another is s'mores, where kids request different snacks to make the s'more and then have a conversation about it. So it's a fun game. They found it was a valid measure in children and adolescents, which is important. Even minimally verbal individuals had about three utterances per minute. It took about 20 minutes, which was pretty well tolerated by the kids and adolescents. And it wasn't biased towards males or females. It was validated in kids with autism, but it could also be used in other developmental disorders that affect language. Now, this is a big step in coming up with ways to standardize measures to collect information on language for kids across the spectrum. So even in those who are minimally verbal, verbal ability can be measured, and that's important. And because Dr. Taker Flussberg is so actively trying to understand what goes on in people with minimal verbal ability, she and Sophie Schwartz looked at some data this week around what goes on in the brains of people who are minimally verbal. I already mentioned how imitation is important. Well, what else? What about auditory signals and behaviors? So first, in this new study, the researchers found that kids 
who were nonverbal exhibited more atypical auditory behaviors with no differences in atypical visual behaviors. So when compared to those kids with ASD who had normal verbal ability or were verbally fluent, those that were nonverbal more frequently did things like put things in their ears, they hummed or they squealed, they covered their ears or asked that sounds be stopped. On the other hand, they didn't do things like move objects closer to their eyes or cover their hands over their eyes like they did to their ears. They didn't have any complaints about like like they did about sounds. These abnormal auditory behaviors also help explain their receptive language abilities. Receptive language is how well people can understand language rather than speak language, and it can be measured even in those who are nonverbal. It's a different type of language ability. But the abnormal behaviors around the ears and hearing were associated with their receptive language ability, not their expressive language ability. So while expressive language was pretty low, receptive language was variable and associated with these abnormal auditory behaviors. Now, finally, they recorded brain activity while they were playing a movie, and then they played random sounds during the movie, which is called a mismatch task. They recorded brain activity when these random sounds played. It appears that those who are minimally verbal have central auditory processing problems where they don't distinguish between unimportant and important sounds. So they focus on different aspects of sounds that are not important. The fact that all these sounds being perceived as the same in importance leads to abnormal auditory behaviors and can contribute to being minimally verbal. The researchers also took it a step further and looked at the saliency of different auditory sounds and corresponding brain activity in those who are nonverbal in a scenario called the cocktail party effect. Now, in the cocktail party effect, a person can be normally engaged in multiple conversations and pick up bits and pieces of different conversations they find interesting or if their name is called. They've adapted it to have a conversation going where their own names were called and the names of other people were inserted. This combines attention with auditory processing. They measured brain activity during the scenario in typically developing people, those with ASD who are verbally fluent, and those with ASD who are minimally verbal. Those who are minimally verbal did not show the same brain response to their own name compared to the other two groups. It could be that those who are minimally verbal have issues with filtering important versus non-important information and have a problem distinguishing the two. While this is listening and not speaking, clearly listening and speaking are associated and it's important to understand how people who are nonverbal hear things. So more understanding could be made in how they turn what they hear into language. So we talked about children and adolescents so far. But it's really never too early to consider speech, even in your infant. It may not be their speech. It could be the caregiver's or the parent's speech. A new study from Megan Swanson at UT Dallas describes how speech by caregivers to an infant can influence speech production by that infant later on. Luckily, Megan agreed to answer some of my questions about this topic. So, Dr. Swanson, listeners may be confused by the words verbal ability versus language versus speech. Can you explain the difference between the three? I want to start by thanking you for having me on the ASF podcast this week. And this is a good question to start off with because we often hear these terms used interchangeably, but they do have separate meanings. Language refers to the whole system that we use to communicate meaning. It includes spoken words, gestures like pointing or a shrug of the shoulders, 
in written language, the symbols that we use to convey words. Speech refers to one specific aspect of language, the actual sound of spoken language. In that sense, speech is talking. Now, verbal ability refers to the ability to use words to communicate. It could refer to our proficiency at speaking a language, how effective we are at oral communication, or our writing skills. In the studies that I do, which focus on the first two years of life, we usually measure two different aspects of verbal ability. Expressive language, which measures an infant's ability to speak words or phrases, and receptive language, which measures how well the child understands different words or phrases. So your paper was on caregiver speech. How does caregiver speech influence language in infants and toddlers? And what about verbal ability? There are many components to language, and I don't think we know yet the full extent to how exactly caregiver speech supports these different components. What we do know is that caregiver speech supports early expressive and receptive language skills, two aspects of verbal ability that are most often measured in infants and toddlers. As for the how, I'm gonna give you a simple answer for a complex question. Infants learn language best when words are repeated and when they are paying attention. When parents talk more to their infants, they simply have more experience with words and they benefit from the repetition. However, attention is also very important. Newborns, for example, have a relatively slow rate of processing visual and auditory information. So you will be able to keep their attention and get their attention easier if you speak to them using infant-directed speech, what we used to call motherese. This type of speech includes elongated vowels, a wider range of pitch, and exaggerated sounds. It has this characteristic sing-song quality to it that we recognize as soon as we hear. Now, as infants get a little bit older and their receptive skills improve, infants learn best during periods of joint engagement. Joint engagement refers to a time when an infant and parent are face-to-face and are both focused on the same object. The parent then provides the label for the object and maybe even points to the object to remove any ambiguity. And the infant, in turn, um, learns new words through these experiences. How does caregiver speech have an influence? What is going on here? And why? The research that I have done as part of the IBIS network has shown that children who heard the most caregiver speech at nine months of age also went on to have the best verbal ability scores at 24 months of age. And this pattern held true for both typically developing infants and infants that went on to be diagnosed with autism. In a fantastic paper led by April Choi that was published earlier this year, they reported similar results when caregiver speech was measured at 12 months of age. And there's also been a plethora of research in typical development showing similar patterns of association in toddlers, including work by Hart and Risley, Meredith Rowe, and Janelle Hattenlocker. With that said, we don't know if caregiver speech before nine months of age supports later verbal ability. That's a question that really needs to be asked and answered in our field. The research on caregiver speech that we have been talking about today shows us what amazing change agents parents can be in terms of supporting early infant development. This whole body of research really gives me a lot of hope. We know that some parents, including some parents of children with autism, naturally talk a lot to their children, while others talk much less. There is a tremendous amount of variability in this data. So I think this research provides us with a call to action 
a one-size-fits-all approach to parent-mediated intervention may not be the most efficacious way to support early language skills in infants and toddlers with autism, meaning parents would benefit to varying degrees from additional supports and training on how to increase caregiver speech. As researchers, we could measure levels of caregiver speech before an intervention and then provide the necessary level of support to families. Alicia, I want to thank you again for having me on. Thank you so much, Dr. Swanson, for your help with these questions. And now, probably what you've been waiting for. What help is there for people who are minimally verbal or nonverbal? Well, it's been few and far between. Last year, an ASF-funded research project led by Tom Caravu and Alice Schillingsberg at Emory showed that a specific intervention for those who are nonverbal showed preliminary promise for communication in girls. In the study published recently, researchers at that UC Santa Barbara, led by Emily Ferguson and Ty Vernon, used an intervention called SKILL in those with both minimal verbal ability and cognitive disability. SKILL stands for Socialization Knowledge for Individuals with Limited Language and focuses on social competencies. It combines motivation, prior experience, visual components, and uses peers. They participated in a few baseline interaction sessions, which were recorded, and then they used university students who served as social facilitators. They were trained. Don't worry. They didn't just pluck them off off the street. They then administered weekly sessions about how to do things like say hello and goodbye, question asking, showing interest, empathy, emotions, and fundamentals of asking questions. Again, this was all done by peers. Videos were shown to participants to model each target skill, and the sessions were recorded when they came in to gauge their ability to contribute to a conversation. This ability to contribute to a conversation improved over time. Parents also reported improvements in social conversations at home as well. Remember, though, this was not a randomized control trial. Now, that's the next step. Improvements seen might have been due to a placebo effect. This can be addressed in future studies. This study was done in order to determine the next steps and even if parents and people were okay with the procedures, which they were. These sorts of studies show early signs that they do need to be studied more thoroughly and using the right design with more people enrolled. But the amazing thing is that clinician scientists are developing interventions for this group of individuals that were not thought to be receptive to interventions to begin with. And I'm not saying anything the authors didn't say in their paper already. So it's not a dig. I look forward to hearing how they continue and how all of these researchers continue to help understand and help people with little or no verbal ability. Of course, one thing I haven't mentioned is facilitated communication. I realize people use facilitated communication devices, but I feel like that's a whole nother podcast. Thank you for listening and please register for the day of learning. Imagine five great talks about as long as this podcast where you can see the speaker and even learn more than this podcast allows. And it's free. My favorite word is free. So please join us and talk to you next week.